0: So we'll just continuing with that right now. So I'm just telling you, yes, I'm having a great week. Very good to see you. Like to do uh, a little of the upfront introductions. Get that out of the way. Catch up. How about the weather, Neil? Now you <laughs> you made the choice to come here, uh, born and raised in New Zealand, right?
1: Yes, that's correct. And you
0: made the choice to come to Cleveland. And any regrets yet?
1: No regrets. I mean, we're, we're going five years strong now here in Cleveland. Yeah. And, uh, honestly it was my my first port of entry into the us when i first came was was ohio and cleveland oh i've I've made it my home and i've seen a few other places you know i've seen nevada and las vegas and california yeah and uh, honestly, I, I think Ohio and, and Cleveland kind of beats them all in, in its own special way. You know, we, we, we have the nature, we have the lifestyle. Okay. We, we also have 30 inches of snow outside. And, and that's, the, <laughs> that's,
0: that's, that's the why part. I said it. I said it so jokingly because we got hit like we haven't been hit in many years. And uh, that's I said it jokingly. I love Cleveland. It's, I, it, the, it's a true land of opportunity. I think. And it's something I love about talking to you and listening to other podcasts I've heard you on. Uh, you are so positive, man. You do love Cleveland.
1: I, I do. I love Cleveland. I love Northeast Ohio. And and honestly, mm. I've, I've had the chance in the last few years to learn a great deal about Northeast Ohio in, in terms of my work. So that's been very rewarding. Um, you know, we we have a real special um, I guess movement happening here in technology. We have so many technology companies, especially that are, you know, achieving things that are just phenomenal. I and think
0: that's amazing. And I'm sorry, my friend, I got to introduce you. I kind of oh, forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, on, yeah, everybody! Welcome to Over Fifty Starting Over, and we are uh, we are with my my very good friend Neil Singh as a special guest co-host here. Neil's a thought leader on emerging technology, as you can tell, he was ripping right into it there. Neil's goal is to help people understand new technologies as he's going to help us here today and debunk misleading content. A lot of it out there. Today, Neil is here to talk about the metaverse, crypto and NFTs and the extreme nature of investment speculation. Neil, there's so much going on today in that as it relates to emerging technology markets. And Neil, I say that because have you heard of the hit that crypto, uh, I guess, Bitcoin just took in the stock market? Huge hit. So, uh, yeah, let's get you started.
1: Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I am seeing the, the trends in the stock market. And bef- before I continue, I want mm-hmm. to give a bit of a disclaimer to the audience. Um, I'm not a financial advisor by any means. So, you know, take take this uh, information that I provide today with a grain of salt. I always recommend that whenever, you know, whenever you're making a financial decision with your own money, always talk to a good investment advisor from a reputable company, you know, a, a FICO accredited company, preferably that can give you good advice. So I, you know, I, I just want people to get some clarity around, you know, what are the opportunities? What is the metaverse? What are the opportunities yes. in the metaverse? What are, you know, crypto and non-fungible NFT assets? You know, what are these things? How do they actually work? And also just kind of stimulate, you know, a little more Of a grounded and meaningful discussion around how these things can help companies. Because what I'm finding is there is a lot of marketing. In fact, the marketing around these things absolutely saturates the social media landscape. You know, you will type in Metaverse and you'll get 10 billion searches. And the thing is that when people see these, topics being discussed and they see them in the wall street journal and the new york times and all these big publications talking about them you see articles on cnbc and and all these other places the majority of us are confused i mean i've been true i mean let's say this i've been in technology pretty much all my life since an infant you know i I got exposed to the apple IIe computer back in 1984 and i haven't looked back since (laughs) and I've been in industry now for nearly 23 years, so a fairly long time to be in this IT industry, and I've seen the industry grow and evolve. And believe it or not, there are still things that are happening today that absolutely confuse me. You know, there's wind, a wind, lot
0: of different, you know, I've been trying to wrap my head around the metaverse, and you'll find a different definition with every link you click on.
1: Yeah, and and, and the thing, I think the thing that really irritates me about the metaverse right now, or the way that it's being presented, is that there are influences and thought leaders and, and companies and people who are trying to assume ownership of the metaverse. Yes. Now, now, we'll address this first, because fundamentally, I think this is kind of the inception. This is where it all begins. When you get a company like Facebook going I out there and it. telling the world, you know, we're creating Meta, and Meta is going to be the platform for Metaverse, or when you get any company for that matter, that is going out and making that statement, th- th- what they're sort of saying is we're claiming the land. Now, I want to kind of rewind a little bit here and remind everybody, and and you've probably read this in one of my recent articles, when the internet was first being sort of um, launched to everybody, did anybody really own it?
0: Someone tried.
1: Someone tried.
0: I get your point.
1: CompuServe, AOL, Mm -hmm. there were companies in the market that were trying to capture through their platforms what the internet was and what the experiences would be. They were trying to essentially craft the experience Mm -hmm. but eventually what happened is a couple of companies created web browsers and then all of a sudden the content on the internet as we know it today became accessible to everybody regardless of whether you're a business or whether you're just an individual. So the experience that we have on the internet today, the web pages, the content, the video, the e-commerce, the Amazons, the Netflixes, all of these things are driven by the internet. That was enabled because the internet was open. It was a free, open, accessible network for everybody in the world to connect to and participate in in some way. That's where the communities came from. Now, I'm going to pause for a second and say, that is what the metaverse should be. So as the internet evolves, and to to be really, really simple about this, the metaverse is like an accelerated, more content-rich version of the internet as we know it. You know, um, they're talking about digital infrastructure, so when we talk about digital infrastructure, we're really talking about immersive and interactive spaces within the metaverse, which are not two-dimensional, they're three-dimensional. Within these three-dimensional spaces, there is engagement activity and commerce that people can sort of interact with in ways that at the moment we, we can't necessarily interact with. So if you're on an Amazon page you know, it's a 2d experience. Yes. But if you're in a in the middle of this, you're in maybe a virtual store. Anyway, I'm going to pause there. Oh,
0: okay. Well, you started to go down the path I was just going to ask about because I wanted you to explain that better for us. For my audience, I'm having I'm, I'm kind of getting there. I'm kind of getting there with you. So you're going down the right path. We all know what it's like to shop on Amazon. And first of all, kudos to Amazon for revolutionizing the buying experience online. Mm. Although I still hate them. (laughs) I mean, now I hate them (laughs) because they're taking over the world. So now please Neil, try to explain to me what it would be like for the 3d kind of this, this new leap into uh, the metaverse.
1: So, you know, when we're we're broadly speaking about the technology that makes up the metaverse, it's things like virtual reality, it's things like augmented reality, it's things like persistent worlds. So when we talk about infrastructure inside of the metaverse, we're talking about, um, you know, virtual maps, virtual buildings, um, things that are characterized by the aspects of the digital and physical worlds combining. So when we when we think about that, um, it's not exclusively accessed by virtual reality or augmented reality either. So so one thing I want people to understand is when we consider something to be metaversal, it's really talking about the connectivity of a number of different devices to a a digital infrastructure that can help support an experience that is more than what you would get in your traditional internet landscape right now. Okay, so
0: you're saying that we're going to be buying some add-ons for our traditional computers so that we can expand our experience, right?
1: exactly exactly okay. and and that's and and it is all about the experiences and Agreed. what we have what we have presented i think in the world today in terms of vr and ar experiences or mobile experiences on the metaverse is that there are a whole lot of content creators or companies that are creating content to fit inside of this digital landscape, this digital infrastructure that is now defined as the metaverse. But it's really interesting because in the last two years, especially, the metaverse is being presented as a new concept. Agreed. It's, It's being presented as not just a buzzword but here it's like saying well this is completely new and all the companies and the influences and the people that are involved in the metaverse are creating something evolutionary you know they're transforming the world through this evolutionary thing but i would like to remind people that again dating back to the traditional internet web 1 web 2 Mm-hmm. All of the conditions to make the metaverse a reality have been engineered for nearly the last three decades. So we're seeing, obviously, the adoption and increase and in availability of the internet globally in the last 30 years. We're seeing more devices, mobile, you know, computing Uh, virtual reality, all these kinds of things connecting to the internet in the last few years. Um, We're seeing, I think, this this whole pathway of here we are now and where do we want to be? But I'm going to add something to that. Since the early 2000s, if not earlier, we have always had companies in particular, I will say gaming companies. So these are companies like um, Activision Blizzard or companies like Bungie or companies like Rockstar Games or you know, any of these large ID software, that's another one. Any of these large production companies that were producing video games traditionally, they have all created the the catalytic event, essentially, through these video games that is giving rise to what we now are defining as the metaverse. And when I say that, I want us to take a look at multiplayer games quickly, right? When we look at multiplayer games, multiplayer games are games like World of Warcraft, Guild Wars 2, uh, Black Desert Online, Overwatch is a multiplayer game. You know, there's a number of titles that the younger younger people especially uh, are very, very committed to enjoying. And Fortnite is another big one. These multiplayer games online create communities. They create digital virtual worlds, 3D interactive worlds, where you can interact with the environment and you can interact with the people in that environment. They create commerce, so you can engage with, um, you know, like a virtual store, you can buy items online, you can, you can trade real currency, believe it or not, for costumes and, and and all sorts of goodies that that, you know, games like that, provide to their players. Final Fantasy XIV, by the way, is currently one of the most popular games in the genre. And what you find is that the way the company monetizes that gaming content is by creating all of these different ways for people to engage in that online world, in that digital 3D environment.
0: So is it like they so can buy weapons and stuff like that? Buy they can lives? buy
1: weapon, they can buy weapons, costumes, they can even buy digital houses, you know, oh, they can wow. buy digital pets. So you 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 know, you'll be playing something like Final Fantasy, for example, and you'll you'll enter into a community where they have these 3d homes and you can buy one of these homes for the game currency and you can decorate one of these homes so you know it's really creating a virtual life and and it's not just multiplayer games like warcraft uh, or final fantasy that have done this um you know um it's it's things like the Sims. The Sims have been very popular in the last. Is many that still? Years. I haven't heard that, about that in a long time. It's it's still extremely popular, mm, and, mm. and a lot of people still play the Sims, and you know all of this kind of stuff. There was Second Life back in the early two thousands that that you know was one of the first virtual worlds out there, which actually um, confirmed a, a level of trait. You know, where people uh. could buy digital assets with, within the game. They could buy wow. property and land. So when we think about the way the metaverse is being presented today versus what has happened in the last 20 years, let's say, since the year 2000, Um you know, the, the 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 foundation was already being built in gaming in the gaming industry. They were pushing the boundaries of what was achievable. There were a lot of very very smart people in that industry that were working on different ways of enabling a more content rich environment for people to engage in. And now that set the stage for what we now look at as as the modern you know, metaverse or how people are defining it. Because if you think about how the metaverse is evolving at this point in time, let's look at what companies are actually doing. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, you can access the metaverse with a number of different devices. So that's one point. You can share a number of different experiences. That's the second point. You can trade and do business in the metaverse by creating 3D... Um, replicas of your products. So if you look at companies like Nike, which is a very interesting one, they have created the unique shoe products, some of them, and they've put it on networks in augmented reality like Snapchat. And therefore there are 200 million people around the world who use Snapchat that can access that particular shoe in the metaverse and they can potentially purchase that shoe by experiencing you know what that product is in that 3D space. Do you um, mean for game for games? Well, they could purchase it in in games or in, in that digital environment and they could also so, purchase they could also purchase it in real life because there is a a way of monetizing that in re- real life as well.
0: All right, so Nike is actually paying advertising bucks to a certain game, correct? To
1: Well, I well, I mean, I wouldn't say so much game, but they're, they're paying like, okay, so Snapchat is the one where, for example, Nike does some business with the social media network Snapchat. Mm-hmm. Snapchat enables augmented reality experiences for its, for its customer base. So if you're on a mobile device and you're using Snapchat, all of the emojis that you can do on your face, or, or if you're looking at different products that are advertised through Snapchat, all of these things can be augmented reality enabled. So technically, they're metaverse capable, let's say. okay, And, and so you can visualize these products in Snap within the Snapchat application and you can kind of experience the product. You know, you can see the colors, you can see the dimensions, you mm-hmm. can see if it's got the features you like, you can pull up all that metadata that's around that product. And once you're informed about that particular product and you've seen the 3D replica of that product yeah. online, there's probably a way to click on that and and purchase that product in, in real life from having that experience using the Snapchat augmented reality features. So okay. this is kind of when you think about the value proposition that companies are seeing when they talk about the metaverse and they talk about all of the incumbent technologies within the metaverse. So incumbent technologies are what we call augmented reality, virtual reality, so on and so forth, right? That's the, that's the opportunity. That's Mm -hmm. the value proposition. Um, I'm just going to pause there for a second, because I know you probably got a million questions.
0: Well, I do trying to bring this together for both me and the audience. So we're all familiar with the Amazon experience. We're also all familiar with the Facebook experience. Now, I know that Facebook is trying to AOL this thing, right? And um, I want to see how they how these two are comparable when it comes to the treatment of the metaverse or how they differ and compete. That's my question.
1: So, basically, we're going to go back to what I originally said about the internet. I do not believe at all that the, the open, openness of how we use the internet today could be basically monopolized by a handful of large companies. So the Facebooks, the Googles, the Microsofts, all of these very, very large companies. While they might say, well, we have released the technology or created technology to bring the metaverse opportunity to life, they can certainly stake claim to that they cannot say that we should control that network. So, because frankly, the network is not something that should be controlled. The the idea fundamentally of the metaverse is an idea that it should be a ubiquitous network. It should be accessible always, it should be persistent always, and it should be available in any way that we choose to access it, much like what the internet experiences is of today. The other thing that I would add to that is when we see Facebook meta, when we see any company, you know, talking about their technology offering into the metaverse space, what we're really seeing is a platform, and I, and I take it back to the early days of the internet. When we, when we think about platforms, we think about CompuServe, we think about AOL, we think about these early rudimentary kind of software applications that were developed so that people could connect with each other online. So when we think about Facebook Meta, Facebook Meta is just another platform. You know, you put on your Oculus device, you log into your Facebook account, um, and then you access the features or the virtual worlds that Meta enables for you. If you look at Snapchat, it's the same thing. You have to pull up Snapchat on your mobile device, and you have to actually log into the system, and then you can access the community, the network, and all the content within that network. These are all enablers. They are platforms. They are software applications on the cloud that allow you to access the metaverse. Independent of that platform. Okay. independent of the metaverse itself. Okay. Now, the, the claim that these platforms make is that, look, we are enriching that experience on mm-hmm. the internet. So, mm-hmm. so what they're basically saying is where you would otherwise log on to a website maybe to purchase something, if that particular store had a virtual 3D presence inside of Meta, then you could browse that store in 3d inside that virtual environment. So it's, it's, it's really thinking of it in terms of digital twins, you know, it's like saying, here's what our experiences in the real world may be like, here's how we advance these in the digital world. So I got a question. Sure.
0: I got a good question. From a practical point of view, the we all love Amazon, uh, love Prime, Gets it to you for free and all that takes all the pain and love the return policy. Super easy. Uh, But we all have a problem ordering pants and shoes online. You got to try them on. How does a virtual world deal with that?
1: I mean, they're creating experiences where you can sort of try before you buy looking at 3D costumes. I know there are some fashion labels that have invested in that experience. It's kind of Mm. like a mirror. It's a mirror experience. You know, you'll go in there, you'll pick up clothes you like, and then you'll dress your 3D avatar. And we're going to get to that one in a second. Okay. Your three D, your three D avatar. You'll dress them in that costume, and then you'll see if you like it. Now, as it comes to size, or you know whether the costume is going to fit you in real life, that's still something that technically you have to know your measurements for before you place a purchase order, right? So, so there, there are some things that this digital interaction cannot do.
0: But and- as you say that, Neil, I could see if your avatar is, if it's really close to being accurate, an accurate uh, virtual representation of you, and that model of that shoe or pair of pants is very accurate as well, you could get extremely close into that, that real world fitting experience.
1: You can get very close to it. Yes, you can. And and the interesting thing about this also is that digital avatars or versions of yourself inside of these Metaverse environments. They are more or less designed by the users and creators, by all of us really, who have an online presence. They're created so that we we can engage in that Metaverse as a replica of ourselves. So when we see people, you know, it's, it's like character creation screen inside mm-hmm. of a video game, right? When we see people creating that avatar for themselves, that is a digital representation of themselves. And the interesting thing about that digital representation of your avatar or your hologram or whatever, however you want to put it, that digital representation inside of the metaverse, and this is what's the selling point, by the way, has almost unlimited accessibility to things that they can want inside of that metaverse universe. So the the interesting thing about that is, and, and I'll take it back to gaming because it's a little easier to understand. When you're playing a, a, a video game online, there are a certain number of achievements that you can earn throughout the game as you progress and level and get to higher stages in the game. Now, what these achievements enable is rewards. They enable you to become, I guess, to create your status in the game at a level where you can then go and afford some of the goodies at the end game, right? So you can mm-hmm. get nice costumes, you can get nice weapons or or outfits or anything like that. You can afford to maybe buy a little 3D house in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So the metaverse for avatars is a very similar concept. It's like create an avatar inside Facebook Meta or Horizon or whichever platform you're using, and then go out there and experience this world and then enable yourself to transact within that community. And this is where it's starting to get really interesting. When you can transact within that community, you can build your digital assets and build a digital profile for yourself that may even be more lucrative than what you are in in real life. So, wow, that's, that's where it gets a little bit mind blowing. And when we look yeah. at the research, when we look at the research, the, 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 the qualified research, so this is academic research that has been conducted about these online sort of um, environments, people are spending more time in the digital world than they are in the real world. And the, wow. pandemic, the pandemic has exacerbated that. Sure. You know, it's, it's because we can't travel as much and we, we can't go anywhere. And frankly, there's a lot of people out there just that are not comfortable going on a plane or traveling sure. or, or experiencing the real world around us. There are a lot of geopolitical issues that prevent us from experiencing the things that we would want to experience in the real world. And the reality of that is that the metaverse kind of, Diminishes all of these boundaries. So, what happens is all of a sudden, if I say, Well, I want to explore, you know, um, different landscapes that I would otherwise be too scared to travel to in the real world, I can do that in the 3D world without harming myself. So, Neil, these are just.
0: I got a good story, a short story for you. A couple of years ago, I was at a networking event. Now, I can't think of the name of it off the top. Oh shark tank, like the TV show. And it's about uh, featuring people that are peddling new products and services, trying to start new businesses and business owners like myself come in and just give some uh, advice and any leads that you may have for them a little help. And these two ladies were uh, peddling and starting to get successful with virtual reality, the big headsets and everything to go to Uh, what do you call that? I don't want to say old folks home, nursing homes and things like that, people that are relatively incapacitated, and take them anywhere in the world that they want. So they want to go to New Zealand, they put on the glasses and they have the full immersive effect. The only thing you're missing uh, is smells and touch. But so they passed the glasses around with some examples of the uh, virtual reality, and it was really mind blowing. It was I, at first. I this is my experience. I'm looking straight ahead, and I'm on a basketball court, right on the court. And LeBron James runs right at me, jumps right over, and dunks a basketball right over my head. And she said, "Turn to your left." I turned to my left, and a Jurassic Park like dinosaur came up and sniffed my face. I turned to the right, and there's a clown juggling like uh, things with fire and it was all super real but to the point of going wherever you want in the world we are entering the matrix for real we really are this is the real it, beginning
1: it it very much is and 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 that's where the excitement comes from because When we think about it in economic terms, it's about economies of scale. If you can replicate a digital economy, which is as large, if not bigger, than the real world economy, then all of a sudden the metaverse makes a lot of sense. And that is primarily where the hype is driven from, that the more digital you can get, the, the, the idea of creating commerce and systems to basically create these experiences for people, it becomes richer, it becomes more accessible, so on and so forth right. but then and and I know I don't know how long this is this podcast is going to be but we I got a good to, 20 minutes okay good um I'll I, I'd love to sort of you know taking that into account I'd love to sort of mention the the way that companies are looking at monetizing the metaverse as it stands. And we've seen a lot of this lately. We've seen cryptocurrencies, yep. we've seen the trading of cryptocurrencies, we've seen, you know, NFTs, we've seen a lot of things that are kind of related to the monetization of the digital metaverse. I would like to say that when, when we think of crypto, right now, I believe only something like 10% or maybe less of that crypto audience is involved in other ventures. And when I say other ventures, I mean things like non-fungible tokens. Right, NFTs. So, so NFTs Let's right?
0: try to uh, identify that a little bit.
1: So I'm going to give a, a bit of an example. Um, at the moment, as it stands, I believe there's a lot of falsehoods in the community about what NFTs are and what they do and what they represent. And I think that's part of the marketing propaganda has caused this misunderstanding. Um, I think that's bad for the, the digital environment. Let's, let's put it this way. I don't think NFTs are necessarily a good thing. The oh. If you look at the community who has played virtual games or multiplayer games for the last 20 years, there's a there's a sentiment of anti-NFT in, in that community. And that's a very large mm. community. That's hundreds of billions of people. They're saying, well, if you bring this type of monetization inside of a game environment, aren't you basically taking away from the achievement-based system where we can work within the game to earn our rewards? Because once you bring the question of, NFTs and monetization in that particular type of environment, people can buy whatever they want with real money. And all of a sudden, there's no point. The skill
0: leaves the okay, let me explain that for a minute. So you're playing some Dungeons and Dragons type of game, but you now have the ability to buy an axe, this very powerful axe to slash your down your enemies with. Now, does that axe have to be a limited amount in quantity in order to make it valuable? Does well, it, you know. this,
1: and, and scarcity, yes, scarcity fuels the drive for, you know, sort of um, the value that things hold inside of, you know, multiplayer games. And it's the same thing. Scarcity is the same thing that drives the Bitcoin cryptocurrency markets and also the NFT markets, right? So in in, in very short terms, um, you know, and, and if you're holding on to a cryptocurrency right now, you're part of a very unique audience of investors. Because frankly, if you're, if you're getting any of the valuable cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these ones, they're expensive. Right, they're not cheap. It's three thousand dollars, for example. On average, it's about that much to buy an Ethereum. I don't know what the trading price is today, but when I last looked at it a few weeks ago, that's how much it was trading at. A Bitcoin, Bitcoin goes up and down and fluctuates a lot, but its highest price point has been close to fifty-five thousand dollars per coin, and the lowest price point has been, you know, less than thousand dollars. So, so the the thing that that kind of creates that scarcity and and, and and what people in this I guess industry are saying about it is that these these things are hard to produce and therefore inherently they have value. And they're saying that because they're hard to produce, because of that scarcity, that's what creates the value. and then, the value of these things is being, again, exacerbated in the market, because large companies are investing great amounts of money in the speculative trading of these currencies and digital assets. Let me now, ask you, Neil,
0: how are they hard to produce when they're just digital elements?
1: They're hard to produce because basically what the algorithm for a cryptocurrency tends to do is that um, it gets the, the more... You run the algorithm; the harder it is to produce the coin. So that's where
0: blockchain comes in, correct?
1: Well, blockchain's a little bit different, so I'll I'll explain that in a second. But I thought that was a feature
0: of crypto. But go ahead.
1: Blockchain, yeah, I'll explain that in relation to NFTs in a moment. But when you when you think about cryptocurrency, let's stick with crypto right now. The more that's produced the harder the algorithm that drives that production makes it. So basically if you have a cryptocurrency farm, if you created like, let's, let's roll the clock back about, let's say about 13 years, let's go back to 2009 when, when Bitcoin was just an emerging thing, right? Very small handful of people got involved in, in that time. They used to literally run desktop computers. They used to have four or five desktop computers that were running the Bitcoin algorithm to produce and mine the Bitcoin. Now, at that point in time, because there were so few people using this, it was much easier to create and generate a Bitcoin. But then as people continue to invest and then all of a sudden, people started to create entire data centers for Bitcoin mining across the world, right? So they would invest in 50,000 crypto mining machines, put them in a large warehouse, and then start mining at scale.
0: Now, let's just stop there for a minute so that we all understand that. And because it's like right there for me, but Mm -hmm. not quite. And I've watched a lot of videos on this, and I'm still having a hard time. Mm -hmm. So with your original analogy of the five desktops creating the original bitcoin that did that mean that each of those five desktop computers had to verify each verify independently what that thing was correct is that correct yeah
1: they they would verify basically they would use the algorithm to verify you know obviously it's using some type of blockchain to create an a currency from this but they would verify the algorithm so many times they would run the algorithm and then obviously that would create okay. something. So right?
0: then these are secure computers that supposedly can't be hacked. And therefore, that's where we come up with this whole safety factor of Bitcoin, because a lot of people are talking a lot of experts are talking like this could be what saves our currency. The mess that it is currently yeah
1: well the 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 interesting thing about it was that the original premise for currencies cryptocurrencies was that we can decent it was two things two get things, the right. bank side. yeah it was like we're going to decentralize finance and we're going to democratize finance yeah now the second one i'm all for it right the, the second one's very important when they say you know, decentralized, they're talking about the control factor. When they say democratize, they're talking about the ability for everybody to create some kind of wealth using this form of currency, which has scarcity. But here's the problem, because in the past decade, the premise of that, the foundation of that belief system has completely changed, because if you look at where Bitcoin is now, it's out of range for the majority of people in the world yeah. to actually actually buy or invest in. And even if you were to have a crypto wallet and investing in in the mining or or invest with a mining company that's producing Bitcoin, unless they're doing it at scale, it's no longer four or five desktops sitting in your basement. It has to be a data center. It has to be 100,000 machines working every single day to produce a single coin. Now, the thing is that the the more scale that they added in the crypto or the bitcoin mining industry, the harder the algorithm made it to mine a single coin. So that scarcity is is where they they have basically that value proposition. And then what what other engineers started to do in the crypto industries once crypto wallets and, and all of this was more established in the market, they started to make other algorithms to basically get an easier entry point into that industry. So if you look at cryptocurrency now, there's there's at least 50 different types of cryptocurrency. There's Bitcoin, there's Dogecoin, there's Ethereum, there's Litecoin, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Now the reason and and uh, unfortunately only the top 2 or 3 have really incredible value. Yeah. All of the others don't have that much value, but the the business case for all of these other currencies and algorithms being created, is that it's easier to mine these smaller ones because it requires less compute horsepower to do so. And if you get enough of, you know, if you get a thousand units of Dogecoin, maybe you can trade that in for an Ethereum coin. And then you can, you know, mine a little more. It's like penny stocks in a way, right? It's like penny stocks, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing as penny stocks. Now, the interesting thing, though, and and this is what I find hard to capture, the scarcity was meant to create value in the cryptocurrency. But it's really hard for me to gather in terms of what is the foundation of that. So if we look at if we look at um, the Fed, the F- the currency that the Fed you know, produces for the United States. If you look at the IMF and, and the global currencies that operate in every country in the world, and, and technically governments have kind of some kind of control system around that, these are all backed by government bonds. So if we pull out a $20 bill, regardless of inflation, regardless of interest, regardless of banking policy, we know that there is a government bond associated to the printing of that money and the trade of that money across the world right? With Bitcoin, or with any cryptocurrency, what is financially backing that? It's an algorithm. So how do we create value? Well, this is where I think speculative value has come into play. Because what we've seen is, you know, the Elon Musk's of the world and many, many, many other companies, you know, startup companies in the in the fintech area, they've all taken very large amounts of money, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and they've invested it into the cryptocurrency market, creating a backstop, a real dollar backstop for the digital currency in use.
0: I see and, what and, you're saying, because so, it's only as valuable as it's perceived to be. Because of, only, if people will invest in it, then it has value. It has increasing value, but there's a little bit of a house of cards game going on here. If you have a multi-billionaire putting in millions of dollars into that, right?
1: Exactly, and 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 the speculative trading around this is is very dis. It's concerning to me when I look at the industry because what it does is it it creates that it creates a valuation for something that may not actually exist, right? So if a company is saying we're going to invest a $100 million into Bitcoin, then all of a sudden the the conditions around that, because I mean, think of it as an everyday, I'll give you an everyday use case, right? Right now, if I want to buy a house, some might say, well, you could probably do that with Bitcoin. The technology exists to do that. But how real is it? can I go to Howard, you know, the, the real estate company? And can I go to the titling company? And can I go to the bank and say, well, I'll give you five Bitcoin for that house?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably not,
0: probably not, they would have to be themselves invested <laughs> in it, right? Right. They
1: would have to mm-hmm. be invested in themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you need to create the market conditions for something to have that value. And if the tradable value is directly related to cash, so if if the only way I can really get leverage from my Bitcoin investment is by trading it in for real dollars and cents, which is what the ask is right now, then how do we offset the system that was originally created to say that people can use this as a new form of currency? Well, you can't. Because right. at the end of the day, what's backing that currency, whether it's online, digital, in the metaverse, wherever, is still hard cash. True, so,
0: but we just have to suppose that it gets big enough so that we are trading Bitcoins for Bitcoins and, and products. Yeah.
1: yeah, and 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 one, I mean, the thing is that it has, but the artificial value is, is, is of concern. I think that that yeah. type of thing is... Um, it's it's being used for, you know, basically it's being used for industries in the world that want to stay under the radar mm-hmm. right now. And then that's mm-hmm. where the other value proposition kind of falls over, I think, um, because a lot of trading goes on internationally using cryptocurrency that is illegal trading as well. And governments can't get their heads around that. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like you said, it's like the matrix, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of like you're in this virtual space where no one can really control the the connection and interaction that you do.
0: Well, anyway. let me understand. Do you believe then do you believe that there's a few the the future is in bitcoin and that it can help rectify our economy and get us off of the manipulation of the uh, Federal Reserve
1: or no? Every every financial system has to have some kind of legislative boundary. Mm. Mm. So my response to that is that there are no financial systems that can escape legislative boundaries. So if you're the Federal Reserve, if you're the IMF, if you're any world banking authority, you have essentially a transactional stake in the claim of any new opportunity. So when we see large companies, especially talk about the metaverse and talk about crypto, and when we see large banking institutions saying, we now support crypto wallets or crypto trading or crypto investment, what you're seeing is the recognition of a new form of tradable currency that has some legislative boundaries around it. Now, I'm not saying that it's embraced or endorsed right now. I'm saying that based on the existing rates of inflation or hyperinflation that, that you know the, the countries like the US and other countries around the world are experiencing, there needs to be some point of transition and transformation because otherwise, the devaluation of our dollar is inherently going to cause Bitcoin and cryptocurrency to look more attractive in the long term. Yeah. If, our, if our currency is exposed to too much inflation, we're going to have problems using that currency for anything. So if digital currencies have a premium on them, they're going to be more attractive. And then so my answer to that is that whether it's government, whether it's the Fed, whether it's IMF, whoever it is around the world, that controls the, the, the money system, they have to take that into account because you can only inflate or hyperinflate a currency so much. And we have currently um, interest rates, frankly, uh, are not helping because right now they're very low interest rates in the U.S., Uh, internationally to try and compete with these interest rates. Other countries have adjusted their interest rates and that's causing an inflationary market. And we're gonna see in terms of currency and fluctuation, we're gonna see a lot of changes in the financial markets because of how the dollar goes up or down. And so the, the, the biggest point of difference I think that made Bitcoin and currencies like that very attractive was that I could be sitting in, let's say I'm sitting in a country in North Africa and I've got a mining operation in North Africa. I can essentially, because the value doesn't necessarily drop as much as my currency would, I can essentially trade with the US using the same dollar value because of what the value is of my Bitcoin. Now that's what made it attractive. It sort of brought down the borders because mm-hmm. if you, if you go to certain countries around the world, in fact, as close as Mexico, if you go to Mexico, you'll go to a McDonald's and you'll see a Big Mac priced at a hundred Mexican pesos or something ridiculous. It'll look mm-hmm. ridiculous on the price tag, mm-hmm. but that's just because the inflationary conditions of their currency are so much lower than the U.S. dollar, which is the your, you know, kind of the, the base currency for the, for the rest of the world. So, so when we think about that, that's where all of a sudden crypto makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if it, if it does make sense in that regard, then the Federal Reserve or the IMF or any other banking institution has to see it as, as something that they have to eventually adopt because it, it'll have a stronger point of value than our traditional currency. Okay, um, I'm go- I'm just going to pause for a second, because I before we sort of finish today, I don't want to get to the topic of NFTS. So
0: Oh, okay. I was considering that Neil, I wonder if that's a little bit too much to bite off. We've talked about the metaverse, we've been talking about Bitcoin. And I'm telling you, like, I listened to this two to three hour podcast with jordan peterson interviewing these three guys who are like varying degrees of phds and authors on bitcoin they've been all studying this they have a podcast on it for two years straight and they they said they said it took them two years to truly understand all of this so we're trying to unearth all this so quickly i i don't know if we want to get into nfts i think nfts are simpler though
1: i think i mean the basic gist of nfts are that they're on a blockchain you know, they're, they're tied by a blockchain. They are trackable pieces of digital data that are on the blockchain. When people buy into an NFT, they're securing a position for themselves within a certain blockchain. So that's basically what you're buying. When the the digital sort of the financial backing for that NFT is done through Ethereum, uh, that's the cryptocurrency yeah. that's related. So that's essentially an Ethereum blockchain that. that that enables, or that's the public ledger that enables you to purchase into an NFT. And the representations of an NFT, whether it's digital art, or tokenized invoices or any kind of credentialing, you know, for music or content or artwork or collectibles that's available, that is represented through some kind of physical object. So what we've seen, I think, in more recent times is the bored monkey, you know, that very popular image in, in the NFT market of, of, you know, these little quite ugly looking monkeys, right? Characterizations, right? Computer
0: Um, reproductions of like 10,000 of them.
1: Yeah, computer Mm -hmm. reproductions. And people are buying these things to basically secure a position on the blockchain ledger. Now, Mm -hmm. this is for me, this is where it starts becoming a little bit discernible in terms of how does an NFT really have value versus NFTs that are not worth anything? I think if an NFT is tied to a piece of intellectual property that is unique, then it then it has its value. Mm-hmm. Now that's my opinion. So whether that's a piece of content, whether that is a piece of artwork that is unique, whether it's music, you know, anything that basically ha- would have value in the real world, mm-hmm. and that value can be correctly represented in the real world, will also have value as an NFT whether it's a product or something like that now I, my point in case around this is that the most expensive nft in the world was traded at christie's auction house as a piece of artwork for close to 55 or 60 million dollars oh my god and it was a jpeg right it was it was a jpeg artwork it was a mm-hmm. unique artwork so this right. is what made it special it was a unique artwork produced by a fellow and it, you know you reproduced it digitally and then Here is the thing: the platform for selling this was Christie's auction house, a very old school, you know, famous auction house. Tradition meets high tech. Yeah, tradition meets high tech exactly. So I think that there is a value proposition if you're dealing with unique intellectual property as it relates to NFTs. That's my clear answer. What I I don't quickly, what I don't like, however, is when somebody tries to sell you a digital asset as an NFT where no value actually exists. Right. Now, there is a lot of that going on where people are saying, well, you pay us for a position on this blockchain, on this NFT or Ethereum blockchain, and you'll be part of the ledger, you'll have a position in queue for this specific ledger that we're creating. And this particular icon will represent your position in queue. Right. But at the end of the day, the ownership that you have is nothing at all. Now, the, the interesting thing, and I linked a video on LinkedIn, which you probably saw the other yeah. day about that, where you're actually buying into something that's nothing. Yeah. Um, the The interesting thing I find about that is when you When you talk to somebody, an artist or a creator of an NFT, and they're producing the GIF images or the JPEGs to represent that position on the blockchain, when you ask them, okay, if I wanted an NFT created for myself and securing my own position on your blockchain, what would that cost me? They quote you in Ethereum. So they say, oh, it'll cost you maybe three Ethereum or four Ethereum, right? That's what they come back with. Now, when they say three or four Ethereum, it sounds low, but then you go online and you say, okay, what is the cost of a single Ethereum? Well, it's $3,000. So if they're saying four Ethereum, you're paying $12,000 to get a reproduced JPEG image that has no value towards anything at all. So mm-hmm. if I go to you know, a car dealer and say, I want to use my NFT to buy a car. They're going to laugh at you and send you out the door. So yeah. so I'm I'm always going to be a champion for not promoting things that simply do not have credibility behind them. Mm. Because I think that's what's wrong with 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 the metaverse conversation right now. Mm. I think there's a lot of people hyping it up and yes. I think that we shouldn't get into this this sort of area of hyping it up. Um, When there's so much gray area. There's a lot of gray area. But but like I said, if we tie NFTs to intellectual property, Mm -hmm. then there is a value proposition associated with that. And it's a strong one. I think it's Mm -hmm. a strong enough one to to make a case for how NFTs work. But I can also tell you that there is a resistance in the virtual communities, especially in, in gaming communities, where they're saying, if we build NFTs into, you know, games like Fortnite or Roblox or any of these popular games, we would be diminishing the enjoyment factor of these games in itself. And the reason that the gaming community is saying that is if you monetize everything, then all of a sudden nothing can be earned, which was the point in the first place, right? People enjoy games- Skill and earning Mm -hmm. their rewards inside of games. Often enough, those rewards, digital rewards, are easier to earn through labor than what they would be in the real world if you were going after the same thing. So, I could probably play a game for a month and save up enough digital coins in that game to buy a house. Now, in the real world, unless you win the lottery, you're probably not going to be able to do that. Right. So, let's you know my my i guess my final statement mm-hmm. as part of our talk today is let's get real about where the opportunities in the metaverse in blockchain and in cryptocurrency and nft's really are and and let's start creating communication that honestly investigates all of these things and clearly identifies where the value is and where it isn't, because if we're lying to the audience, if we're setting people up for failure as they invest thousands of dollars of their hard-earned money into these things, mm-hmm. then that's not a good premise for tomorrow's metaverse. Well,
0: what we'll have is an yet another bubble burst that we can't afford right now.
1: Yeah, we can't afford a bubble burst, and I, I didn't mm-hmm. want to say it because I know sometimes when you say bubble burst in on a podcast or write about it, it can trigger you know oh. a lot of things in the universe. Great. It, yeah. So yeah like so we so haven't I, done
0: that enough on this podcast.
1: But but absolutely I, I think we uh, we run the risk of having what I call another dot-com bubble in 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 terms of this being a metaverse bubble yeah. and 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 for for the when the dot-com bubble bursts in in the late 90s, I believe it was, yeah. was yeah. when the dot com. That's when it was.
0: I lost a lot of money at that time. Yeah.
1: When that bubble burst, that's when the internet all of a sudden became valuable. Mm, it was true. after the fact, believe it or mm-hmm. not, it was after the bubble burst. That's when the internet started to produce uh, a value proposition that was strong. to to be, be engaged so the metaverse is the same thing right now we're dealing with a lot of community a lot of creators a lot of people that want the metaverse to be a reality and they want commerce and economics to be a reality inside the metaverse all of that is great but let's not pretend it's here Before it's actually here right now it's in the building blocks, and we need to ensure that there are best practices in place in order to build this the right way, so that. As per the original premise of this everybody needs to be a contributor it you know they're saying decentralize. I'm going to put it to the community of, of people developing the metaverse right now. If you want to be decentralized, then you can't have the wealthy powers of the world investing and making this community become out of reach for the rest of us. Because that's what's happening. That's oh, exactly I definitely, what's I think
0: you pointed that out quite well over this half hour, 45 minutes. Right. whatever. Right. Hey, sorry. I really got to wind up, Neil. I'm sorry, I okay. have a call in 4 no, minutes. But I wanted to plug you on a couple of things. First of all, I'm so appreciative of you coming on the podcast for your second time. I don't think most people know that. I think you might have been in season 1 of yep. over 50 Star- what yeah. And guys, you can catch any of these podcasts at over 50 starting over.com you'll see a button down there says uh, see all podcasts something like that but you are also on I produce another podcast uh, called biz chat Ohio and that is through uh, the small business development center of Lakeland and you were the first guest season one oh, episode amazing. one you kicked it off and I think you have the highest rated uh, podcast to this date amongst oh, them. oh wow Wow. Yeah, you're, cool. <laughs> you're a fantastic guest. Uh, I'm sure our minds are reeling here. But if anybody wants to get in touch with you or learn more about you, Neil, what you got there? What do you got for
1: us? Um, you know, they, they can find me at, at www.neilsingh.co. That's dot .co. And it's just my name, Neil, N-E-I-L-S-I-N-G-H.co. Um, that is my website where I basically release these podcasts and blogs and other content. So it's it's my personal website. And you can easily find my LinkedIn and contact information from that website. I try and keep it as up to date as possible. So once this video is released, there'll be another update. But that's where you can find me for now.
0: I really appreciate it, Neil. I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for sharing with us. All right, everybody, once again, go to over50startingover.com, sign up for the email list there and get all this and our links dropped to your email box as it happens. All right, Neil, see you soon. See you
1: later,